Hey everybody, welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I'll be your host for today. Today is part two of our uh, ongoing series of interviews I recorded in New York City. If you want to go hear about the whole trip as a whole, you can go to episode 056, Tonebenders in NYC. You can hear about all the different people we interviewed. And now we're breaking those individual interviews into full-length episodes featuring the full interviews. Right now I'm on a lake and I'm trying to record some vehicle sounds for the animated series I'm working on. So I'm recording beaver airplanes. And here comes one right now. actually a Cessna. Most of the planes we're recording today are beavers, but that one was a Cessna. It's a float plane, so it just took off off of a lake. It just went right down the lake in front of us and took off into the air. It's part where it left the water was kind of right in front of us, so that was kind of a perfect one for me. And hopefully I'm going to be able to mangle and match that into something new for the animated series I'm working on. But anyway, back to today's episode. We are interviewing, sorry, I'm getting attacked by mosquitoes as we're saying this. You can hear the dock I'm walking on. It's a floating dock. Okay, no. Plane's about to circle back over us here. So today we're interviewing Abigail Savage. So we interviewed her in November of 2017 at her studio, which at that time was called Digit Post, Digit Audio maybe. Uh, but Digit has since uh, rebranded and moved, and it's now called uh, Red Hook. So if to look up Abby, you can find her at Red Hook in New York City. It's just opening up. They're rebuilding all the rooms, and uh, I think it's all the same audio crew as was at Digit. So when you hear in the interview her referring to Digit. It's now uh, Red Hook. So we're going to throw it from uh, recording airplanes. I'm going to sign off here. Have a good time with this interview. Here's Abigail Savage in New York City. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. So far, so good. Excellent. So you've been working with Digit since 1998, I think your yeah. bio said? Yeah, it ages me. But yeah, <laughs> basically, um, I interned at Digit like the summer after I graduated from college. And that internship turned into one of those sort of hardly any pay all the time kind of jobs, do anything you possibly can, which turned into, you know, the machine person, which turned into a freelancer. Uh, and even when I was a freelancer, Digit was still my, my primary employer. And then a few years back, I guess it's five or six years now, I became full-time here. Yeah, so we were just saying before we started rolling that that's kind of like the golden unicorn, having a full-time job at a studio. Yeah, it's highly unusual. And it had come at a point for me when I'd had a year where 
neither of my two careers, because I'm an actor too, neither had been going very well. And I just had one of those years, you know, those years that you have that are just so dry, just a total drought. And I was like, I'm getting older. I need to figure this out. And a guy who had been working at Dig It full time was deciding to leave. And I sort of raised my hand. I said, I've been working here for like 15 years already. Let's make this a permanent marriage, huh? So I slipped right into full time and, you know, I'm holding on for dear life. It's really, yes, it's it's hard to find and it's a, it's great when it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're an actor as well. The thing that people might know you most for is Orange is the New Black. Yeah. Yeah. So are you the sound crew's uh, favorite actor on that show? <laughs> it's so funny because when I first showed up there, you know, I was very green as an actor, but had a lot of experience in, in post-production. And so I would see these things going on and I would constantly want to say or do something about it, be like, you know, you're going to have to ADR that afterwards. And uh, I was kind of dismissed. Nobody knew that I was in the sound world. And slowly they started to realize that I was a voice of reason among other actors. Like we worked in the kitchen and we had to wear these gloves. And I was like, these gloves are going to make so much sound while other people are talking. Like, can't we fake the gloves or buy different gloves or something like that? And uh, Soon, soon it became clear that like I, I was on your side, guys. I'm always on your side, guys. It's it's pretty funny. Yeah. When I'm cutting dialogue and an actor suddenly goes off axis on the boom mic or something, I'm like, oh, what are you doing? Did you find that you're a little more forgiving? <laughs> you don't curse their names out so much. Well, you know the thing is, I I'll always blame the boom operator for that. <laughs> but the other thing is, is to be cognizant. Like it's really fun to be an actor with that kind of knowledge because we just did a scene with like. 10 characters in it in a relatively small space and that boom operator was like moving as fast as he could and the whole time I could see that boom in my periphery you know and I was just like just wait wait for the boom wait for the boom it's funny you do get a whole second sense of of the technicality of a thing when you bring that knowledge to set that not every actor has but you know eventually they're told like maybe you should just pause a bit before your line Uh, so it works out in the end usually. So let's talk about your sound career specifically. You have worked on a few of my very favorite films. Inside Job oh, yeah. is amazing. Yeah. It's one of these movies that makes you just want to scream at, well, the whole world, basically. It's remarkable, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, Supermensch, oh, yeah. which is such a fun movie. Uh, Sleepwalk With Me. Yeah. So you've worked on some amazing films. Were they all through Dig It? All of those were through Dig It, yeah. yeah. So Dig It has a, a long history of, of sort of indie doc. Well, all documentaries are, are indie to some degree, right? But we've been doing documentaries for a long time and have established relationships with, with really good documentarians. And uh, Inside Job, I just lucked out that I was the editor that was chosen for that. I did the dialogue edit on that. So it's so funny because it had a really good budget and the better the budget of the film, the less you have to do as a dialogue editor. You know, the, it's the low budget films that need so much work with dialogue editing. So that was, I had pretty smooth sailing. Although the director was very particular in the mix room. He could really hear all the clicks and pops and I thought I'd actually handed over a really clean dialogue edit. And, and I actually had to go back in and do a, a, another round of polishing that I actually hadn't expected and that I, I haven't experienced before. He's very, very particular. And, you know, everything ended up sounding great in the end. So when I was researching to talk to you, I saw that on Rotten Tomatoes Inside Job is a 99 percent. Wow. Like 
I, I don't know what other, I'm maybe Citizen Kane's at that Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> that, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And uh, so you brought up that you guys do a lot of documentaries, yeah. which is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you. New York has a profound history of documentary work. I wanted to talk to someone who's more into that scene. You've also worked on narrative films as sure. well. Yeah. So I wondered if you could tackle uh, the idea of how you differently approach those two things. Well, I think they're, they're two twofold, because uh, one is uh, how they're different creatively. The other is how they're different technically. So I'll start with technically. Um, with a feature film, most of the scenes are recorded as written. And then, uh, you know, the job technically uh, for a dialogue editor is to really clean up and suture together the different camera angles. But but you're primarily given what you see on the script and, and it's a, just a sort of cleanup job. And then creatively, uh, it's you, you have no idea what's coming at you. It really depends on the director and, and where they want to take things tonally and, and how abstract they want to be or how realistic they want to be, how much sound is supposed to just be there to support the dialogue versus how much sound is supposed to be its, its own organ in the piece. Um, with documentary work, people are cutting together sentences, usually, that never existed in the first place. So you have somebody talking for 20, 30 minutes, and you create a sound bite from that that's maybe 30, 40 seconds long. And so there's a thing called frankenbiting. I don't know if you guys have that term too, where they really like cut together a string of like eight or nine words from different sentences at different points in an interview and sutured them together to try to turn them into some, some sentence that has the kind of clarity of meaning that the interviewee was, was intending in the first place, but it just took them 20 minutes to, to get all that you know, information out. So technically, that's very challenging. And then creatively, frequently what you have to do is, is just totally support that. You don't want anybody in the audience to know that there's quote unquote sound design going on in it, unless, unless there's something like an animated sequence or, yeah. or visuals that are representative of something that would be sound design. But frequently you're just there to subliminally fill out reality. And actually there's one documentary I worked on that was really interesting. It was a war documentary and uh, it was cameras given to men in the field. And the entire documentary is this footage from these guys who were in Iraq. I think it was Iraq, not Afghanistan. And the director was like, you know, when the gunshots happen and stuff, I want that to be really real. I want you to really feel like it's the real deal. So I researched what, you know, an AK-47 really sounds like, and it sounds like popcorn and mm -hmm. things like that. So I came back at her. Uh, with my fully realized sound design where I kept things very subtle and I matched the reality of these sound effects and she, she her, her face with just all the blood dropped out of her face and it was nothing like what she intended. She used the word real, but she meant the word visceral. Mm -hmm. She wanted the audience to feel like they were in the middle of, of some horrible, horrible gun Fight. Yeah, so I completely rejected my initial version of all these gun effects, and I just totally Hollywoodized all these gunfight sequences, and it was surround sound, and I had multiple layers of gun effects, and um, that was exactly what she was going for. And I, I kept thinking to myself, how is this going to play? Aren't people going to realize in the theater how fake this is? And we saw it. We saw it at Tribeca Film Festival. And, you know, nobody, unless they're in 
the sound world would have any clue. They, they just don't think about it. It sounds real to them. It sounds great to them and visceral to them. Um, and I, it really was eye-opening in terms of documentary sound, like what you can get away with because people just, luckily most people don't know what goes into our jobs as, as post-sound people and how much gets added after the fact. And as long as you stay within the realm of what people think is reality, regardless of what reality actually is, um, you're sort of in a safe space. Yeah, there's a weird like uh, decision between the audience and the filmmaker to go with it in that this is real with documentary. We understand everything's fake in a narrative film. Like right. throw whatever you want at us and as long as it works, we're gonna accept it. With the documentary, you don't wanna cross that line into taking them out of it and going, wait, this is manufactured and then they question the entire film. Right, they question so, the film's integrity, exactly. which is the last thing you want from a documentary. Mm -hmm. yeah. There really is that line that you cannot cross with yeah. documentary. And it takes away a little bit of your creativity, but in other ways it adds to your creativity because you have to solve that it's problem. problem solving. Yeah. yeah. The most technically challenging documentary I worked on, which is Supermensch. Hopefully, nobody can tell this, but almost everything said in that documentary is sutured together by individual words. Wow. And I'm talking like, to build a sentence, I would have to go through the transcripts of the interviews of each individual and find every place where they said the word pot or whatever and, um, and try out, you know, try that word out, all five instances of that word in the sentence to figure out which one sounded the most realistic. It was unbelievably complex and, um, Mike Myers also had a, had a very, very good ear and was not going to settle for anything less than 100%. And he was the director on that. Yes, yeah. yeah. So we would sit in here for hours just auditioning different versions of the exact same sentence that had been sutured together, just like craft work. I, I felt like I was putting together a timepiece or something with all these little pieces and that it was either going to tell time or not. For sound editors, so often the stuff that took the most time and that required the most is the stuff that nobody, nobody knows. And if you've done your job right, nobody knows. Mm -hmm. um, you can always hear when bad sound happens, but frequently, especially with dialogue editing, if you've done a really good job, nobody has a clue. And that was one of these documentaries where it was just like, you have no idea, no idea what these strings of sentences that were just completely manufactured. And like I, I want to say, my caveat is all the meaning was inherent in those interviews. Nobody was being made to say something that they never intended. But these were people who took a while to get to the meaning of what they were going for and to get something that was tight because that's a very sort of fast-moving, fast-paced documentary to get people to say what you needed them to say in the right amount of time at the right pace was just like you really had to craft it. And it was, it was crazy difficult, that, that particular doc. Well, it worked. I didn't feel like that was the case at all when I watched it. And Good. I... The other great help you have with that film is people are laughing a lot. So yeah, yeah, maybe they're true. laughing through some of the edits that were And tough. music. I yeah. mean, there's music mm -hmm. all the way through. And mm -hmm. in documentaries, music is our savior because it 
it does fill in a lot of the negative space uh, and hides a lot of the uh, shifts in tone that are just inevitable when you're getting live recording constantly. You never know. You can't control your environment, so you're going to get all these disparate tonalities. And so having that music is like, thank God. So on Supermensch or any other film that you're working on, you get an OMF from the video editor, right? Yeah. And it's got all these little chunks put together. Yep. And after you've heard it and get yourself calmed back down, <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Uh, you are also getting access to all the original full-length interviews that you're digging into as well? I try, Yeah, so what has turned out to work the best for me with documentary stuff is to then have all the original audio and to have transcripts, searchable transcripts, so PDFs that also have time code on them that relate the audio that I'm getting of the raw interviews so that I can then search for a word. Let's say it's somebody's supposed to say, and I've never, right? But the and that was cut in is and people. Well, that P is, and the, the P and the D working together is totally different than an I and a D working together. So then I do the search term and I. Is there any place in this interview where the person says and I? Or is there any place in this interview where there's at least a D and then an I? And so I, I search different search terms. I find all those little pieces. So I go back and I have a whole other Pro Tools session with the raw interviews in there. And I pull out the individual moments in that interview that could work in, in my edit and I copy them all over, like maybe onto one track. I call the track and I, and then I pull that track into my edit session. Then all of a sudden I have 14 options available to me to try to make this sentence sound right. It's like ADR, and an editor's just never thinking about how the words link to each other. They find the closest word and that's in your handles, and, uh, and they just chop it in there regardless of, of the context. And so as a sound editor, you just have to figure out a better way to solve that problem. So were you saying... Mike Myers sat in here oh, yeah. for hours building those sentences. Oh, yeah. How often are directors sitting in with you on the dialogue edit? Well, it depends on how technical it is. I mean, he knew that was going to be the main hill to climb with this particular job. He knew that these were sentences that were really cut together. And he, had, like I said, he had a really good ear. Obviously, he's been in the film world for a very long time and knows his shit. And he's mad intelligent. And... Um, he wanted to really quality control the project. And that was fine by me because it's always good to have a second pair of ears. And, you know, I, I always feel like our job is just to deliver what's in the mind of the director. So, yes, it's usually what happens is that a couple weeks into a project, you're like, hey, you know, I have a few of these places where I'm not sure that I, uh, this is working, you should hear it and, you know, give me feedback. That's the usual thing. But with, with Mike, he sat in for a good, you know, I'd done a full pass. And what I had done is created several options in all these places uh, so that I wasn't wasting his time. We would just, it really was like listening to an ADR session where we would just go through each option and he'd be like, well, that's the closest, but it's still not right. And then, you know, we would move one word, one frame left or a quarter frame left or right and try to change the crossfade on a thing. And I would literally be adjusting my crossfades between two words until it sounded perfect to him. Um, so yes, it was that level of detail sitting in with the director. I try to be also just generally 
as collaborative with the director as possible. So I'll do like a week and a half, maybe two weeks on my own, but then I'll have long, long sessions with the director in here where like if I've built a really complicated ambient bed for a scene, I will go through every single layer of that ambient bed so that they know what they're working with. And if usually it's like there's one sound that's uh, that I've pre-mixed too loud that they're just not digging. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I will go into as much detail with that director as possible before they hit the mix stage so that they know what they're listening to on the mix stage and can really feel like they're in control of the sound of their movie. That's really great. I find a lot of directors don't want to get that deep in the weeds with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my experience, if they do, it works out so much better in the mix room because, like, that's where the real money's being spent. Yes. Like, it's obviously much more an hour in a mix room than in an edit suite. Exactly. And if they already know all that information going in, then the mixer isn't going, this is this track, this is this track. <laughs> and, like, you know, a full 15, 20 minutes could be wasted on that. Absolutely. That takes away from what the mixer's supposed I to mean, be doing. I mean, it's imperative in the indie film world that, that the bulk of the time that the director is coming in is spent with the editor, not the bulk of the time. I mean, they're going to sit in on that mix, but you don't want any surprises in the mix. That mix has to go as smoothly and as quickly as possible because the budgets for these films, you know, we're the end of the line. So there's never any money left. And they're always trying. I mean, I feel like the budgets have just decreased in, in the 18 years that we've, I've been doing this. It's just like less and less and then asking for more and more. And so I always feel like, you know, my main job is to make it as smooth for Tom uh, Tom Effinger, who's runs Dig It Audio and is the mixer and is my boss. I want to make it as smooth a ride for him as possible so they can just be creative in there and, and sort of tackle music as, as the main design element because music tends to come in so late that I, yeah. I never hear the final music. I'm always working with temp music and trying to just make assumptions about that. You know, there are certain directors, the ones who are real auteurs in the indie world like Ramin Barani and Josh Marston, and I've done a few of their films, they're very particular and they want to jump in the edit room with me as soon as possible. Like I have to, I have to hold them back and be like, just, just give me a week, just give me a couple of weeks to get something out there and then we can go over it. But we will go, we will go over things in detail. I mean, they will know what's on every track during, especially during very specific scenes. They will just know those scenes inside and out. And we will get them as close to mixed as possible in my edit room before they even hit the mix stage so that they can think, you know, you, you get to have a whole second uh, generation of, of thinking, creative thinking as a director, if you've already brought everything to the level where you think you like it. Then you get it onto a mix stage in this bigger room and you add music and you can really start making a whole different set of, of creative decisions. So I don't want any surprises in, in the mix room. I want them to know exactly what they're going to get. And it's, it's the most efficient use of time and money and the most creative way you can, you can do something. And I think that's what I've seen more often than not is in the indie world, that's exactly what the directors want of this process, too. When you're delivering your session to the mix, are you, what kind of plugins are included in that? Do, are you EQing as you're going? Are you compressing? Yeah, so what we've taken to doing at Digit is we have a mix template, uh, which has some basic presets on all the dialogue tracks, and all of our busing is preset to group tracks, which also have their own set of plugins. And it's sort of a default, basic starting off point. And I will edit in that mix template from day one. So the first thing I do when I get that OMF or AAF is I drop all the respective 
clips into the respective mixed tracks. But after that, I don't go near it. My time is better spent making choices, and I will do leveling. And at this point, I think we do mostly gain automation rather than volume automation, so that when Tom gets it, he can just think about volume automation. Everything is generally set, but he sees these nice flat, flat faders. Yeah, and um, I personally, and this is very specifically me, other editors might do a lot more tweaking to EQs and stuff, but. That's just not where my mind ever is. I mean, if something's like mad bassy and, and I clearly can hear that it needs some roll off that's, that the preset isn't you know, doing, then I'll, I'll tweak it. And on documentaries, that might all go out the window. I, I was thinking feature narrative films. On documentaries, I might delve into those EQs because y you need to know if what you're doing is going to work. When you're trying to suture together two different interviews that have crazy different tones on them, I'm certainly going to do noise reduction and tone work to see if they're gonna ever match and I'll get it to a relatively good spot. Um, but I tend not to mess with the plugins mm -hmm. on the tracks, unless it's noise reduction, which, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, so. isotope, I'll isotope the shit out of those things, but <laughs> that's about it, yeah. <laughs> In the world of narrative film, uh, I want to talk about Sleepwalk with me for a little bit. Sure. What was your role on that film? So I did the sound design and sound edit, sound effects editing mm -hmm. on, on Sleepwalk. Uh, and it, was, it was so much fun. We got the dream sequences ahead of time. So there wasn't, there wasn't a timer on me when I got the most creatively challenging scenes. I was able to just sort of work on them at my own pace before the project even really began. And when you don't have that added pressure of like, I just have to get this done fast, when you get to just be like, how do I make this awesome? It's just all the pleasure of being a sound editor with none of the you know, drawbacks. And the other great thing about doing that is it meant that Mike Verbiglia had more time with these scenes to sort of listen to them and think about them and how they were going to work with the music because the music was going to be very quirky. Uh, but you know, I had so much fun with the nuclear bomb scene where he ends up jumping, jumping out, the, out window. the window. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, you know, my direction was just put everything in there all the alarms are going off, you know? It's just like, do it all. Just throw in 16 different alarms, make it as cacophonous and confusing as possible. And it was just like, it was so fun to orchestrate that because of course you could do that in a really poor way where it ends up all just sounding like mud or you can get everything to sort of dance together and just create this sort of audio spectacle, which is what I was going for and hopefully achieved, you know, for that particular scene. It was great fun. Was there a weird convergence? Because he ended up being on uh, Orange is the New Black where he was like, wait, what? Yes. <laughs> in general, it's an odd experience to be uh, on this side of the film industry and on that side of the film industry. I'm not taken seriously as an actor in the sound world and I'm not taken seriously as a sound person in the acting world. And so I think when there was that convergence, when Mike was on set for the first time and it was like, oh, hey there. It was just, it was, it was really... It was very, I don't know how to describe it, but I think we both got a real kick out of it. Yeah, it's, it's the only time that's happened that I've really had. Actually, Kate Mulgrew came to dig it once to do ADR. So that was the inversion of that scenario where I was like, hey, welcome to my day job. <laughs> 
schedule-wise, how do you make that work? Because I have a vision, you like at the craft services table with a laptop and right. your keyboard out going, telling the camera ops to shut up so you can work. <laughs> so generally, basically, because I have such a good working relationship with Tom and have worked with him for so long, he's just been totally cool about me saying, hey, I have to take four days off this week, which is actually exactly what happened to me last week. I had to take four out of five work days off. And so a couple things is one, it's unpaid leave. Like I max out my, my vacation time and then I'm like, you guys are not paying for me to go somewhere else and do a whole other job that I'm getting paid for. It's unpaid leave. And I'm, I'm the one who suggested that. I'm like, this is completely reasonable. You're losing my work time. Uh, and then frequently what happens is that I just, the overflow, if I have to make, if I'm on a project with a deadline and I'm losing those days, I'll work weekends. Um, only like once or twice have I been on set with like my mobile rig trying to do editing, but I'm so used to like my full spread here that like trying to, trying to sound edit on a, on a laptop was just, I was like, where are my number keys? Where are my function keys? I can't get this stupid thing working it drove me it drove me crazy so i really try to minimize that and just just find the extra time when i'm not on set and luckily orange in particular you know we have this huge cast and so what's expected of me is like usually it's just one or two days every couple of weeks and for that it's also just six months of the year so we work around it we just figure we take it as it comes I think the main thing is you must have such a great relationship with Tom that it, he allows it to work. Cause That's absolutely right. That yeah. Without that, you're dead in the water probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just that we have, there's a lot of loyalty between us. With mixers slash bosses, as long as you deliver on time and a complete job and it's good, however, whatever you took to get there, they'll take it. Yeah, they don't care if you work 9 to 5 or midnight to 8 a.m. as long as it's there it's, when they show up. Exactly. If you mm -hmm. deliver and everybody's happy, who cares if you worked, you know, they, they don't care if you worked mm -hmm. 48 hours in a row. You might care, <laughs> <laughs> but they don't. And so it's, as long as I manage my time, I get away with it. But it is, it's getting away with murder. It's, it's, it's remarkable that I, can, that I can do it. Yeah, it's a pretty unique situation. Yeah. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. It was really great, and uh, hopefully we'll see each other soon. Thanks a lot. It's very flattering that you had me. <laughs> hey, everybody. This is Tim Muirhead again, back on the lake recording some airplanes. None going by at this moment, but uh, I just wanted to wrap it up by saying thanks to everybody who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Stacy DuPass for letting us bend and twist her voice in our intros and bumpers. Thanks to everybody who helps the podcast by shopping through our affiliate links at B&H and Amazon. That really helps us. And if you don't want to shop to help us, you can just leave us a tip through our website. That is always appreciated. Again, we don't make any money on this. We're just trying to break even. So thanks for listening. If you have any ideas for future stories for the podcast or you want to try and do a story yourself, reach out to us at info at tonebenders.com and pitch us the idea. We've had a couple that have gone to air so far, so it's been really great. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Peace out. I see plane about to land.
for listening to Tone Vendors. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.